are you thinking about? Anything you what it once was, but I guess it'll do for now. Hello, I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge, and this is The Long Road to Ruin. Tonight, we are uh, moving on to our second part of our Crow series. We will be talking about The Crow, Salvation, The Crow, Wicked Prayer, The Crow, Master of Puppets, The Crow, Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter, The Crow... Uh, it doesn't matter. Just we're, we're talking about the bad ones now. Um, when we say long road to ruin, this was uh, a, sh- a short trip to the stratosphere and then a plummet straight down into hell. What I'm trying to tell you folks is that these are not good movies. So we're going to have a lot of fun tearing them to pieces. Uh, and helping me do that, he's going to pull on the right leg while I pull on the left leg as these movies are on the wrong end of the wishbone. Here he is, folks, my good friend and co-host, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Oh, folks, you have no idea what the last 15 minutes have just been like. <laughs> okay. Um, first off, thank you all for tuning in again, and welcome to the show. I'm Sean. You're not. And apparently, I am a superhero in the making. Because... Uh, my older viewers out there, and by older I mean roughly mine at Mark's age, uh, probably remember watching Cisco and Ebert at the movies. Mark, you remember Cisco and Ebert, right? I do. Okay, so you remember how the show opened with this funny little montage of how they're both working at their respective Chicago papers, and <laughs> then, and apparently we have either a caller or a sneezing puppy who wanted to chime in there, um, who just all of a sudden after a, after a day full of typing either thumbs up or thumbs, de- or thumbs down and quite possibly all work and no play makes, makes Gene so, slash Roger something, 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 uh, they pick up their coats, and they just both depart across the Windy City for a movie theater. That's pretty much what happened tonight before the show. Because leading up to it, guess what? I almost overslept it. <laughs> I, I, took, I went and took a nap sometime this afternoon because I wanted to freshen up for about 
45 minutes. That apparently turned into about an hour-and-a-half-long vision quest of, of fever dreams inside my pointed little head. And the next thing I know, I'm waking up, looking down, saying, oh, shit, I have 20 minutes of a podcast. So with, ironically enough, the Cisco and Ebert show theme stuck in my head, I get up, throw on some jeans, and, of course, my requisite N7 hoodie, uh, call into the show, tell Mark, hey, I got something I got to do. I got to run across the street. I'll be right back. And with super speed, literally, right across Country Club Road, I go to Circle K to go fetch my requisite donut and 44-ounce diet Dr. Pepper. I made it back in the door right as the theme song was starting. <laughs> Kid you not. I, I had my phone plugged in on my laptop and sitting and sitting on it just waiting for it to go because uh, my battery was also nearly dead when I woke up. And just right as I'm setting foot through the door, right on cue, practically like a sitcom, the dulcet tones of the Foo Fighters pour from my coffee table. You are, you are the Flash, that's for certain. It's, it's actually interesting. I, I, um, I, okay, for, first off, Green Arrow, some of my bitch. Or as um, as as my good friend Kim called called me this afternoon, Sir Mojo. Yeah, it's funny. Um, just in prep, the whole reason why we had to do this podcast in two parts was, you know, as as people know, if they follow the show, I've got kids, and sometimes I can get away with watching, say, Batman versus Robin in front of my kids because it's a cartoon and it'll pass, um, as I did earlier today. Uh, there are certain things, though, I can't get away with playing, and any one of the Crow movies would have, would have fit the bill. There's just certain, you know, I can get away with The Daily Show because it's, you know, my son likes the theme and he dances to it. He drops it like it's hot. Um, and then it's just John Stewart talking for 20 minutes. So, I can, you know, John Oliver, same thing. Uh, drops it like it's hot. It's John Oliver theme, too. But uh, I can't play a lot of movies that we talk about because, it's it's just you know I don't want my kid looking at boobs. Um, you did it. You did it. Yeah. No salvation. No way uh, you get that. Uh, the, the, yeah, the, well, not, neither one of these movies would have been would have been good for a one year old, let alone a four year old. In any case, so I, I hadn't had an opportunity to watch the last two before the last show, so we're going to split these up. And uh, I tried watching Salvation last night. And it was like a, it was like a Pat Oswalt does a bit about um, a, a a homeless guy that does that uh, did a bit where he kept nodding off in the middle of the bit and would wake up later on in the bit. Um, I actually told the story when we when we reviewed Daredevil uh, as well, where like I would like I'd start the movie five, five minutes into it, I pass out, wake up fifteen minutes later, pass out again, and like completely confused as to what's going on in the movie. So I'm like, I'm gonna have to try this again. Um, so it took me two tries to get through Salvation, and I learned my lesson, and I said, okay, I'm going to go to the gym today and watch Wicked Prayer, because I figure, you know, what, at least that'll make being on the treadmill a little bit better, and um, I'm not entirely sure which was worse, Wicked Prayer or having to do an hour-long cardio session on the treadmill. So I'm going to go right now to our friendly neighborhood tonight. Go ahead. 
Oh, I, I was going to say, I'm sorry to interrupt your intro. I was going to say, did, did you, what, bring your iPad with you and just slap that down on the treadmill? Yes. I uh, Verizon, when I renewed my contract with them for our uh, Fios, gave me a free uh, tablet. So um, I brought that with me. Uh, as I was saying, we are, we're going to go right now to our friendly neighborhood uh, title card artist, our friendly neighborhood Brooklynite. How many times can I work the phrase friendly neighborhood? Get it? Spider-Man, everyone. Here he is, folks. As I said, our, our, our illustrious title, title card artist and comic book writer in his own right, Mr. Ben Cologne. How do you do, sir? Good evening, guys. Uh, I apologize for my cough earlier. Um, and uh, for the record, I'm actually from Queens. Um, I thought you lived in Brooklyn. Maybe I'm thinking of Pat, who lives in Jersey. Go on. Possibly. And, uh, yeah, once again, burn in hell Skype, um, now that that's over with, uh, <laughs> I barely even tried this week. I'm so, like, done with that. <laughs> you know, um, I'm very famous in the, uh, in the 411 MMA world for having uttered the phrase in reference to, um, What's his face? The British guy with the mohawk uh, that uh, George St. Pierre beat the shit out of. Um, help me Dan out Hardy. Thank Dan you. Hardy. I'm, I'm very famous for having uttered the phrase in reference to the Dan Hardy GSP one-sided fight. Um, at least he tried. And Also true. And uh, that's the best way I can sum up salvation and Wicked Prayer. I think there was an honest attempt <laughs> to make good movies here. I, I think their heart was in it. But between bad direction and bad acting um, and not enough differentiation in the, in, you know, in the stories, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like what, what Sean and I talk about when we say, like, how, you know, I, I, like I think of Paranormal Activity being the best example, where we talk about where can you take this, this is a gimmick franchise, where can you take the gimmick to make it interesting? And we, we tossed around some different ideas. I feel like there was an attempt made with Salvation and Wicked Prayer to do that, and just because you are taking something in a different direction and trying on different motifs doesn't necessarily make it good. And again, you, you can't just do something different and expect it to work out. You have to have a good director on board, good cinematographer, good actors, good acting, uh, etc., you know, the whole package there. And that's ultimately what this episode is going to, at least from where I stand, going to be about. I thought the, the, the plots of Salvation and Wicked, Wicked Prayer weren't bad. I thought they were pretty interesting ideas for where to, where to take this particular franchise. They were just executed poorly. Um, so I guess that's where we'll, where we'll begin. We'll talk about the movies individually, but I kind of want to get your overall impressions of these movies. Um, obviously, those just to say, these were shit. Now let's go talk about, you know, Age of Ultron or the Force Awakens trailer that dropped today. <laughs> you know? um, but I, I want to know first uh, from, from Sean and then Ben, you know, you, you heard my summation. What would be your summation of these two movies as we begin to talk about them? Beats rides Jesus on a stick. Why? 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 
why? I mean, you make a first movie, it does well, you make a sequel. I've come to accept that as a matter of course, whether the sequel makes any damn sense or not. Spoiler, neither of these makes any goddamn sense. On the other hand, sequel tanks, that should be it. No, in this case, that is an excuse to assemble a pack of... Actually, even more tragically, if we're being honest, a pack of at least fairly serviceable actors at worst, and at best some really effort-filled top-notch performances to really try to milk just a few more cheap bucks out of the franchise. And in this case, they were trying to do it using what are actually two really not necessarily all that bad novels. Um, they just adapted them really, truly, horrendously to the point where the third is completely unwatchable. And as we'll get to in a few minutes when we talk about the fourth one, it's watchable in the same sense that The Room and Burdenic are watchable. But in this case, when it comes to the third movie, God, the writing was on the wall. I mean, it. It got one week in a single Spokane, Washington theater to see if it would really warrant a full theatrical release. And what ended up happening was it was hit by a boycott from a number of Crow fan sites of not just the Crow Salvation, mind you, but a number of Miramax films um, in order to demand a proper theatrical release. So, um, ultimately, it was it was doomed to fail pretty much right from the beginning. Uh, it, it was it was done because this thing only it was absolutely unadvertised. It's just like it would be like waking up all of a sudden, all of a sudden one day, and you just see randomly on I on IGN that overnight Valve released a press release saying, oh, PT Dubs, here's Half-Life 3. Surprise! <laughs> um, and can it just, uh, no announcement, no, well, very, very few announcements, I should say, very little press, because obviously the fans like knew about it, but it got one small newspaper newspaper ad under a lot of political pressure for Miramax to put out less violent films and ultimately ended up with Miramax just saying, screw it, we're just going to shop this to cable channels. So, and really, that's that's about all there is to it. There's very little trivia to this <laughs> except, for, except for just uh we're gonna get it, we're gonna get into a lot as we go on, but I, I'm honestly at a little bit of a loss as to what to say about this because it's not so hilariously bad as to necessarily be one of those instant oh grab some grab some popcorn and settle in and we're gonna sit here and we're gonna go old school Mike Tom and Crow on the Crow Salvation, but it's just kind of you're not mad you're just disappointed. 
because you can see from just looking at the cast and the people who produced it that you've got the tools there to really make a not half bad movie. It just it forgets everything that really ultimately made the original Crow so beloved in the first place. And I've got I've got a good metaphor for it, but you know what? Prior to us talking about that, I seem to recall that Ben had a couple things that he wanted to run down about these two sequels. So I'm going to go ahead and throw it to our throw it to our favorite queen bean, Ben. Uh, ben, before you jump in there, I want to um, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about because what we got is Salvation and Wicked Prayer. We could have gotten uh, some other Crow sequels. Why don't you speak to that first and then jump in with uh, your thoughts on Salvation? Go ahead. Sure thing. Uh, yeah, this is what I'm bringing to the table this this time around. Um, I actually uh, did a little bit of suffering for both of you so that you wouldn't have to. Um, to the best of my knowledge and to the best of my research, there are at least two uh, proposed Crow sequels that we never actually got. Um, the first one I'll talk about is because the, it's the one that I have the least information on, but uh, it was actually intended to be, uh, I believe, the fourth uh, Crow movie. Um, it, was in, it, it was tentatively titled uh, The Crow Lazarus. It was supposed to be uh, basically, you know, because all of these movies are retreads of the original, uh, this one was, was supposed to be sort of hip-hop flavored. It was it was uh it was proposed to star DMX in the in the title role. Uh, pause for uh, reaction. Okay. <laughs> you also gotta remember this. You also gotta remember this was. This was this was uh, this was right around 2000. This was like pre. This was like pre. Is Sean still laughing? <laughs> Just keep going, Ben. Just keep going. Um, this was this was around 2000. This was pre uh, crack and jail time DMX, or at least relatively <laughs> before. Um, you know, this was actually when his star was kind of on the rise. Um, from what I have, I'll, I'll read this here. The screenplay for The Crow Lazarus deals with the story of a rapper who chooses to leave the music scene for the love of a woman and is killed during a drive-by shooting. The rapper is then reincarnated as the crow in order to take revenge on the gang responsible for his death. Pretty sure enough, you know, plot here. Um, here's the one thing that I that I don't have that I that I'm saying from memory and prepare your laughter again. Um, from what I remember from the early rumors when this when this was still like you know rumored at around the time that it was you know intended to come out. Uh, the villain to play opposite DMX at the time proposed to be Eminem. <laughs> About the time when both of them were kind of like you know pretty big, pretty big stars in you know in the hip hop world. So uh, apparently Miramax wanted to cash in and throw him in a Crow movie. Whether or not that would have been good or just spectacularly hilarious, I don't know. Uh, you know, I guess we can always speculate. Mr. Cologne, you had two weeks to come up with jokes for this pod. 
Well, wait, 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 hang on here. I, I wish to voice an objection. Mr. Cologne, you had two weeks to come up with jokes for this show. If you couldn't come up with anything, I still will not accept just managing to steal Doug Walker's old demo reel scripts and passing them off as actual trivia. Come on now. You are free to look it up for yourself. I am I am serious. <laughs> that is too incredible hey, to be true. Wait wait a minute, I'm trying to get this out here. Cat Williams says a DMX is like no, no not much taller than he is, which puts him at about I think like Four eleven, five feet tall. How the fuck were they going to get away with a, you know a, a short, ho- you know, horse, raspy voiced black guy running around shooting people? <laughs> because DMX, the man, the man's entire life is like a Bad Friday sequel. I remember like Chris Tucker. You know, they should have actually, they just should have done an entire hip hop genre crow and should, you know, and, and in succession, DMX, Chris Tucker. You know, they would go, let's go with an entire, you know, out of place crows. I think you know, that 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 would have made money. Sure, you know, the, crows. The, the land of misfit, the land of misfit crows. Yeah. Oh, I can do one better. I can do oh, one God. better. <laughs> okay. So, Sean, last last time we were last time we were on the show, remember when I told you that um, you know that. Uh, that quick, you know, song during the exploding building of City of Angels was not the last involvement that Rob Zombie would have with the Crow franchise? Yes. Rob Zombie actually wrote a full and complete sequel for uh, for for the Crow. He actually, oh, dear. He, and I have it, and I have read it in full so that you didn't have to. Oh my! This is going to either disappoint me that it never got made, or it's going to make me, or it's going to make me think back on Wicked Prayer and think it could have been so much worse, Sean. So much worse. Little little column A, little little column B. Um, okay. This this script and this movie, the way it was intended, was it. It's seriously, if you're familiar at all with anything Rob Zombie has done in, in movies, it's pretty much a mashup of everything that Rob Zombie has come to be known for. Uh, right. It's the the title. It's you know we'll start with the overall title. It's entitled "The Crow 2037: A New World of Gods and Monsters." Yeah. <laughs> what? I shit you not. I will send you this screenplay when when I'm done here, if you want it. Dude, yeah. yes, one. Um. Basically, I'll run down the, the I'll run down as close to a plot synopsis as I could have managed because this 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 screenplay is like all over the place. Um, this is basically it's it's this weird hybrid of sci-fi, post-apocalyptic, supernatural western. <laughs> Seriously. Uh basically the, the the story of uh, you know, of this kid and his mother who is murdered by this crime boss with ties to the occult who has been prophesized to be overthrown someday by this kid. So he sort of kills him, you know, preemptively. 
in order to uh, prevent that from happening. The story then then picks up about 40 years later where the crime boss has become an avatar for this sort of Cthulhu-like ancient demon god. (laughs) (laughs) And more has taken over the world through, you know, through occult ritual and corruption and, and general uh, scumbaggery. Um, it's pretty obvious to see, like, when you read this, it's pretty obvious to see why this movie was never made. It would have cost, like, uh, you know, some ridiculous amount of money. Like, I don't think Miramax has ever spent this much money, you know, as much money on a movie as would have been required to make this movie. Um and I'd also be willing to bet that much like the later Hellraiser sequels, this this was possibly a story that already existed, that Rob Zombie already had, that he later kind of appropriated to be a Crow sequel because a lot of the Crow trappings of, of the Crow movies don't come into play in the movie almost at all. What you do have is every single other batshit insane sci-fi, uh, you know, fantasy trope that you can imagine. We've got uh, witch covens, mutants, zombies, ghouls, uh, you know, gunfighting, horse riding, uh, you know, grave robbing, you name it. Um, and honestly, you know, if I'm being very, very honest here, I don't think I don't think that this this screenplay would have had a chance in hell of succeeding as a movie. But I got to tell you. If I had an opportunity to draw this as a comic, I would take it in a second. You know, you know, it's funny it's, you say that because as you're talking about it, I'm just like, this probably would have made for a shit movie. But it would have made for an awesome RPG, like and like an online uh, role playing game. Oh, like I, I, I could totally. I mean, as you're describing all the various kinds of beings in this, like I could see these as spider classes. I. <laughs> I really don't know. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's easy to see why this wasn't made. This movie would have, you know, the, the the type of story that, you know, that Rob Zombie had written would have cost just this astronomical amount of money. Uh, this was meant to be, you know, this, this came about at around 1997 when they were looking for a third Chrome movie. So I, I guess Miramax took one look at the screenplay and said, you know, uh, no thanks, uh go away, uh, we'll call you again for a Halloween remake in a couple of years. And they decided to do Salvation again for $10 million. You know, it's funny. You, you talk about Rob Zombie penning a script that may have been something else and he just threw the crow on there when they were looking for a crow sequel. I got the feeling with both Salvation and Wicked Prayer that these started out as independent screenplays. You know, independent of the crow, that you know somebody sat down and wrote, um, wrote, wrote screenplays with these plots and uh, these stories, and Merrimack bought them and said, okay, uh, over the next year as we go through our notes, let's reconfigure them into crow sequels. Warning! Uh, warning! Warning! Wrong song imminent. Turn back now. What? All right. 
<laughs> no, they were no. <laughs> oh, oh, relax. <laughs> Not that bad. Actually, and then you can probably fill in the details on me some more because you were sending me the other night when we were both watching uh, the sequels kind of simulcast via Facebook and my Netflix account. Um, they were both based on actual Crow novels. And from what some of the reviews read, uh, not actively terrible ones. That is true. Salvation was a buck. I knew Wicked Prayer was a buck, but Salvation was a buck as well? They both were. Yes, Salvation Salvation was... uh, Salvation was based on a novel uh, called The Crow of the Lazarus Heart. Uh, the author, I believe, and it's a the the author's name was Poppy Z. Bright. Um, not kidding. Uh, but the the movie that we got from uh, from Salvation uh, bore extremely bore precious little resemblance to the novel there's like one thread of narrative from the novel that that got adapted into what eventually became salvation and that's uh you know the the person who was resurrected as a crow was uh died after being executed uh after being framed for the the murder of of his lover uh that's about it as far as i can tell um that's like the Barest, it's like the barest resemblance to uh, to the original novel, and same thing with Wicked, Wicked Prayer. There's there's maybe one thread of of commonality between the novel and what eventually became the roller coaster ride that was Wicked Prayer that we'll get into soon enough. Yeah. Um. So real quick on Salvation, as you said, uh, our um, our hero is framed for a murder he did not commit and summarily executed. Uh, one thread that comes out of that is that he identified a mystery person with a scar on his arm, and no one believes him. Uh, he, he is resurrected by the crow, and he begins immediately to search for the man with the... Uh, search for the man with the... with the scar on his arm, uh, and you know, go about avenging this woman's death and proving his innocence. Uh, and that, and, and it, as it turns out, the uh, there's the there's a businessman in league with the cops, and they're dealing drugs. And that's the brief, brief, brief synopsis of the plot. Um, I mean, I I feel like I'm going to go through this entire podcast with the two of you just beating shit out of me, <laughs> no matter what I say. But I did feel like Salvation could have been a better movie, like. The bare bones of it, the, the the skeleton of the thing, I thought was interesting. I liked the idea of the plot, you know, of this, of this guy trying to you know solve the mystery of his uh, of his uh, of his framing and all of that. My biggest problem, honestly, with with the movie, other than it runs a little long, um, is the lead. And I'll get the Kirsten Dunst in just a minute, but Eric. Mabius, who plays Alex Corvus, a.k.a. The Crow, he has to carry this movie on his shoulders, and he's so he's so bad that it, it takes me out of the movie. Um, you know, I did like the fact that they this departed somewhat 
from the, the imagery and motifs of the first two movies. It was less gothy than the first two, um, though they still incorporated some of those elements as if to say they, 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 they couldn't help it. Like, you can't do a Chrome movie without gothic elements to it, but which seemed out of place. But um, I, I, that was the thing, just watching this guy uh, stumble from scene to scene and overact in certain places and act badly in others. I, you know, I, I liked the idea of what he was supposed to be doing. I just didn't like him doing it. Uh, and then the other side of that is, Sean might get a kick out of this, I spent a lot of our Spider-Man review a couple of years ago defending Kirsten Dunst, and after watching her performance in this, I'm starting to, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to second guess now her performance in Spider-Man. Maybe she's just a terrible actress. Because, boom! Because, <laughs> you know, I'm looking, I'm, 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 I'm watching her and I'm like, you're either a terribly unlikable character or you're just so bad at this that you're making a perfectly likable character that much more terrible through your performance. I couldn't figure out which was which. Um, so that's kind of what I have to say about it. I mean, everybody else in the cast, uh, you know, Fred Ward's fine as the, as the crooked cop. Um, everybody else is sort of, you know, various henchmen, one, two, and three. Uh, William Atherton as Nathan Randall is sort of uh, underplayed and underused, I, I think. But, um, you know, all in all, it, it, it was a movie, with, in my opinion, it was a movie with a lot of potential executed poorly. Uh, now, now I'll let you guys <laughs> pick, on, pick on me and tell me that I'm, I'm crazy. Go ahead, Sean. Okay, well, you got me on a technicality. I can't wrong song you because technically those are opinions, not facts. So you're not entirely wrong. However, I would just inject a couple of other alternate thoughts. First off, Eric Mabius does not turn in a terrible performance. He actually turns in an excellent performance. He just actually turns in an excellent performance in very much the wrong movie. You see, the trouble is, Ben pointed something out last week that these two movies really bear out. Everybody who played the titular role, the lead hero role in each of these three sequels, tried something that should have never been attempted in the first place. They tried to ape Brandon Lee. And you can't do that with these. The big problem is, is Mabius actually turns in what is an excellent case for him one day, somewhere, some way in this universe, getting to play the Joker. It's actually just downright that entertaining because right out of the gate, he's not really savage feral and driven by vengeance, seemingly immediately upon realizing his powers, he becomes downright gleeful in his path of carnage. In fact, he's at times just straight up amusing. And maybe this isn't a terrible actor, and I'll hand him this. Unlike Edward Furlong, he at least has the presence 
to play an avenging Diablo of this of this kind. But it's just out of place for everything that the first couple movies set up, and those are main protagonists who are brought back to life but are confused, lost, and just slowly being taken over and having their humanity reached by all this quest to just mercilessly slaughter all the people who mercilessly slaughtered them and gradually becoming them. With Brandon Lee especially, you get to see them slowly descend down to that level. And while you're questioning whether or not you should really be cheering for their actions, you're also hoping that something somewhere reconnects them with their humanity and snaps them out of it to bring them back full circle. In this case, there's really none of that with Mabius. It's just straight out of the gate, he's dead, murderous, and loving it. And, again, while it would make a, it would make a great chaotic evil villain like the Joker, it ends up making for really a very hollow, cartoonish, and, if you'll pardon the semi-pun, kind of soulless crow here. As for Kirsten Dunst, well, actually, Ben and I got into sort of an interesting discussion while we were watching the sequels. Uh, we were watching them the same day or two, roughly, when we found out that Olivia Munn, of all people, is going to be playing Psylocke in X-Men Apocalypse. What did you say? And boy, am I excited. Oh, I can hear it. It's like I'm talking to Olivia herself. I can, <laughs> Mark, I can I can hear your resting bitch face. Um, no, I, I I swear to God. I mean, I, I just don't want to go off on a tangent, so I'm, I'm so I'm not. But I'm but when I saw first of all, I'm in love with Olivia Munn. Um, you know, she's on the yeah. list. She's awesome. She was rather awesome on the newsroom, um, and she I think she plays like a, like a like a biker whore on one episode of New Girl. I love Olivia Munn. I think she's great. Now that she's being cast as Psylocke, I'm in. It's good stuff. God, if I could, if I could open a tear in time and space, Bioshock infinite style, so I could throw something through it. And By my own like, rules, I offered opinions, and you're not allowed <laughs> to attack me. So yeah. I know, I know you're entitled to your opinions. It's, it's just that. Come on, Fox. I know you can afford actresses. <laughs> Getting on with it. I suppose you can. Um, and if and if anything has ever de- has ever demonstrated that that's what Olivia Munn is not, it would be newsroom. But in any case, we started off the movie, and I was kind of making that comparison in terms of just how damn. Flat, uninteresting, and just utterly vapid Dunst is throughout all this, and and how there's absolutely nothing whatsoever engaging about her. And then uh, Ben pointed out to me a few times that she very clearly just exhausts all of her existing mana in order to channel an emotion for one scene. 
my my biggest problem with Dunst, and we can go back and forth on this a little bit, but um, my my biggest problem with Dunst is if later on you're gonna you're gonna make her the damsel in distress, you don't want to paint her so bad, so bitchy that when she gets there, you're like, yeah, kill her. Yeah, awesome. You sewed her mouth shut. Should have done that in the first scene. I mean, that's the problem with it. She's drawn so terrible that by the, by, that by the end of it, where you're supposed to be, you know, there's supposed to be tension in her uh, having been kidnapped and all of that, as an audience, you're like, who the fuck cares? She's an asshole. You know? I've, I, I've just reached the conclusion that there's only one other movie that I'm really, truly going to like Kirsten Dunst in, and that's Drop Dead Gorgeous. That's it. Uh, you know, some, they say that some storytellers only have one truly great story in them. Well, some actors and actresses only have one really engaging, perfectly sculpted role in them that they'll ever get to play. Hi, Edward Furlong. Just sit right there. The doctor will be with you in a moment. And in Kirsten's case, it was Amber Atkins. That's it. That is it. Um, I haven't really found her to be really terribly, excuse me, uh, really terribly impressive or engaging in anything else I've seen her in since. Yeah, I I can't. Maybe I'm saying something, but I, but I, but I don't think I can. She was kind of, sort of okay for the maybe double digits of screen time that she got in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But, uh, but otherwise, it's just this. Uh, this, it, well, it is a lot like what Olivia Munn does. It's a clumsy aping of what actors do. So I mean, that was what made maybe consciously that was where I got the comparisons. Maybe. Let me ask Ben. Ben, I don't know how many of Kirsten Dunn's movies you've seen, but is she likable in anything? I mean <laughs> clearly she's they, they they set her up as a heroine or as a lead in many of the movies that she's been in, but I can't but I'm struggling to recall something that she was ever likable in. Certainly not this movie. Uh not really not really in this movie. Um I don't think I disliked her quite as much as Shonda in this movie, but that's just because, like, it, it, it's the performance she gave. It's hard to generate, you know. She's she's so minimally emotional in in this movie that it's hard to generate an emotion in anybody that's watching it. So it's like uh, she's just kind of there. Um, most of the cast in this movie that is not utterly wasted uh, is just there. Um, Kirsten Dunst, you know, I, I'm, you know, you you guys know me. I'm I'm super nostalgic for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies. Um, I thought she was okay in in the first two. She was fine. She, uh, you know, she had, you know, she played a role that didn't demand all that damn much of her. So that was fine. Um, and then Spider-Man three came out, and she was completely insufferable in that. Uh, in this, it's not even that. In these, in this this movie is like right before she did Spider Man. Um, she's just 
she's just there. She it's hard to care about much of what happens to her. Um aside from that, you know, if it's if it's cool with you guys, I'd like to cuz I like I said I have so little to say about the actual actors that are involved in this, like you know, Eric maybe as the lead uh didn't make that much of an impression on me either. Uh, by the way, um, you know, to pick up the thread that we that I left off from the last show, um, in this uh, in this movie, uh, he plays a character named Alex Corvus. Uh, Corvus is uh, crow in Latin. Um, the same. So yeah. Um, <laughs> other than that, uh, you know, I, I actually wanted to talk uh, about. Some of the some of the actual filmmaking of this movie itself, and and what uh, what really like you know drove this movie from being you know just kind of forgettable to me to actually what I consider to be the worst of all four of them. You know, it, it took me a while to come to that conclusion, but I think I'm pretty comfortable saying that at this point. Really, um, you really thought this was worse than Wicked Prayer? Um, what I, what I had said to, what I said to Sean, um, at least Wicked Prayer, at least Wicked Prayer had the decency to suck at a more ambitious level, is what I told him. (laughs) Wicked Prayer, Yeah, you can get some entertainment value out of Wicked Prayer. It's not the entertainment value that they intended, you know, but you can mystery science theater the hell out of that movie. Um, this one is, this one, and, and this is what I, what I wanted to get into. Um, I'll try to be concise about this. Uh, this is... Why you know uh, I'm going back to you know my Spider-Man fandom and and my my love of most of the Spider-Man movies, including the the two Amazing Spider-Man movies, which I which I like very much. My my biggest complaints with those two with those two movies, especially the first Amazing Spider-Man. My biggest complaint with that movie was not the acting. I enjoyed the acting very much. It was not the story. I enjoyed the story just fine. My biggest problem with Amazing Spider-Man was the direction. The direction was incredibly, I found it to be incredibly uninspired and incredibly derivative of what Sam Raimi had been doing in the in the, the original trilogy. That, I don't want to say that offended me. That's too harsh a word to say. But it bothered me that uh, that the direction in, in sometimes down to whole shots and scenes in the in the first Amazing Spider-Man, were I could point to scenes in Spider-Man One and Two that were by Sam Raimi that that it completely was lifted wholesale from. There's a lot of that in the Crow Salvation, and it bothers the hell out of me that that so much of it was you know the story is already going to be derivative of the original comic and the original movie. But to have, you know, scenes and visuals and shots and, and motifs ripped wholesale from what Alex Proyas was doing and done poorly, to me, that made it worse. Like, that made it a harder sit for me. 
you know, I counted, uh, you know, I don't have it in front of me. I, I counted at least 13 different times that I, that I saw. Uh, there were probably more that were scenes, you know, different things, you know, uh, that were that were taken from the original. And, and if it was just vague plot points or plot elements, I could probably forgive that. But I'm talking about, like, you know, almost like story beats, like, uh, you know, uh, in the beginning, um, Alex, you know, jumps a, you know, jumps a barbed wire fence, and he's got both of his hands cut up, like you know, stigmata, very much like in the first Crow movie, where Brandley, you know, swings in and out of the window, and he looks at his hands, and and the wounds on his hands heal, things like that. There's a lot of that I, going on in Salvation. Hang on, I I forgave him for that one. He was escaping a prison, I'll, but I'll give you one in trade, one that was unforgivable, and that is. As Sean pointed out, and rightly so, he goes to this whole movie being kind of a you know being kind of a creepster. <laughs> you know, he's like, as Sean put it, gleefully murdering people with seemingly no conscience to it. And he takes a time out to do a you know, and knowing it's half the battle thing, which is lifted com- completely from the first movie. You know, where uh, Brandon Lee grabs Darla. And uh, it squeezes her arm, and morphine shoots out like oh so much jelly in a donut, and says, you know, get your life together and take care of your daughter. She needs you. Okay, fine. Added an element, you know, added that superhero element to him that you know that we all like. And now, now we go to Salvation, and they try to recreate that out of whole cloth in the strip club scene or whatever the hell that place was, where the one stripper is tied to the pole. And uh, yeah, he breaks the chain and he tells her like, "Get your life together," you know. And you, you should have had at that point, Keaton Ivory Wayne should have walked into frame and yelled, "Message!" Yeah, that that's certainly another one that I that I made note of. There's another one where they're I don't remember if they're actually in a cemetery or not, but they do the whole like you know he puts. Uh, I think it's the ring or engagement ring, and then he puts it around Kirsten Dunst's neck, and and that's actually one that Sean uh, spotted uh, before I did, but it's pretty glaring. And yeah, th- that this movie is littered with those, and they're not even trying to hide it or to put it in any kind of different context. It's just there to you know to remind you of a much better Crow movie that you could be watching. <laughs> Yeah, I there, there's a thing in Hollywood. Sean and I have talked about it before. There's not a lot of bravery in Hollywood. There, there's certain there's a lot of fear, and because you're dealing with millions and millions of dollars, and it's usually millions of other people's money, and so you go with what works. There, there's not a lot of art. It's about it's a business. It's about making money, and so I can imagine producers working on these films and going, okay. There were things that worked in the first movie. Doom again, and creative people sitting there going, "No, you don't want to continue to rehash the same motifs and the same shots. You know, literally lifting shots from earlier movies and redoing them badly, doing you know cover songs of them." And the producers going, "No, that is exactly what we want to do because that's what people liked about the first movie." You know, if uh, there's a, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of film psychology in a lot of uh, producers in Hollywood. And that's why you get these things. That's why you get uh, wholesale lifting of things that worked in other movies 
in movies that they where they don't work, where they they seem ham fisted and, and and out of place, and that's just something that unfortunately we as fans, you know, and and in this case reviewers, end up having to talk about is how movies, how potentially good movies get ruined by producers with no understanding of what it is people like about movies. Yeah, and and this is also why the name uh, Edward R. Pressman, who produced all four Crow movies, um, and, you know, while we're at it, shout out to Robert Winfrey for this reference, but you... Uh, in terms of the Crow franchise, Edward R. Pressman is the keeper of the profitability pig hostage. Um, <laughs> he is the one. That, he is the one that you know is, is, has continually cashed in on the franchise to the point of you know where we get to this point and we get to Wicked Prayer and um, just diluted it to you know past the point of any kind of dignity. So yeah, that's. Just thought, just throwing that out there. All right, I don't have a whole lot else to add about Salvation. You know, I uh, as the mo- most forgiving panel member of the movie, um, I- I've kind of said my piece on it. Uh, it g- good idea executed poorly. I get what Sean's saying about the lead. Um, once again, you know, he tried to do his best Brandon Lee impression, and that's um, <laughs> what that's worth. Would have liked to have seen an original character here, but I, you know, but I would also like to have no credit card debt and wings. So what the fuck? Um, anything else on this, uh, Sean? Uh, when it comes to this movie, it's like it's standing about two feet right in front of the point of the first one, and somehow ends up shooting itself in the dick. <laughs> It misses that badly. You know, in the first movie, in addition to the struggle of vengeance versus humanity for Eric Draven, you've also got the fact that in a certain way, you could almost paint him as a Christ figure because he does manage to sacrifice himself for somebody else for the love of someone else by the end of the movie in that he's willing to put himself in harm's way to save Sarah. Much the same way, ultimately, that uh, what's-his-face Corvin, um, I'm going to just call him Baba Ganoush Corvin because I don't remember his first name, uh, the way Baba Ganoush Corvin in The Crow City of Angels does in the second movie, one of the few things that that one actually manages to get right. In this case, right up to the end, it's a merry rampage in which our two heroes learn absolutely nothing. The worst sin of all being the fact that midway through the movie, for what-the-fuck reasons, you have our so-called hero deciding that he's going to use the bullshit crow magic to inflict Kirsten Dunst's character's sister's death on her. Pretty much moment by moment and make her relive it. He thought this was a good thing to do. Between that 
and the fact that he is at no point really questioning his actions and what they mean throughout the rest of the movie, fuck it. By the end of the movie, I'm pulling for Fred Ward. I'm going to forgive him for that. I'm going to forgive him for that scene. It's It's actually one of the few scenes in the movie I actually really enjoyed, and I'll tell you why. Here's why I forgive him for that. Why I felt like it was a it was actually an appropriate reaction, and and, and to feel free to still hate the character and hate the scene, but it made sense to me. She has been nothing but a bitch to him for the first forty minutes of that movie. She believes he murdered the the sister. She when he tries to come to her and say I have been brought back as an avenging angel and. I'm here to prove my innocence and save the soul of your sister. She continues to shit on him. Now, now granted, you know, when confronted with a zombie, some people are going to react, you know, badly. But uh, but even still, she never, at no time does she grant him any sense of humanity. She's flat out mean to him. And I feel like that scene was a reaction to you know, this constant barrage of no matter what evidence you show me, I believe you did it. And him going, okay, well, now I have the power to show you just how wrong you are, and I'm going to. And it, no, and it was just, this, was, but, but it was just the, this sort of volcanic eruption of rage. No, 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 no. No, sorry. That, that wasn't the stated reason why he did it, though. He did it because she's the one who, in her grief, actually said, I wish it had been me that died. I know, I understand and, that. And then that was the, was the stated reason why he did it. He's just a clueless jack wagon who throughout the thing at no point ever really sees the difference that, look, in life, you might have been a little bit of a jerk. Sure, but since you came back, You've been every bit as bad as the people you've been hunting down. And if I may borrow one of my favorite lines, lines from Buffy and possibly paraphrase it a bit, killing with a song in your heart. You, you, have, you have come back a thousand times more terrible than you were in life. And granted, yeah, you were executed for a crime you, did, for a crime you didn't commit. But... At the same time, you ended up ultimately lowering yourself. By the end of the first movie, he got the impression that Eric, through both his interactions with Officer Albrecht and also through his own realizations, got that point. By the end of this one, again, great case for Eric Navius when they they blame the Joker. They're standing there at the electric chair, and he's still just gloating his happy ass off. He still just won't have just won't have it be over with. He just it's a movie where the main characters by the end of it have not really advanced, have not really learned anything. It's just in a in a way you did hit the nail right on the head, and that is that the producers just thought, okay, well, they just want to see the rampage. That's it. We don't need anything else. And part of the problem is the first movie was a work of someone else, someone else's art into which he, well, actually, correction, into which both James O. Barr and the rest of the crew that made The Crow wove the genuine threads of their own broken hearts. 
their loss, their mourning, their coming to grips. And you could see the understandings that really permeated both the adaptation and the original work. You could see that that was something that was meant to be an underlying takeaway. In this, it's no such thing. Hell, listen to the soundtrack. It never shuts the blue ball sack fuck up. It just screams at you all the time with this obnoxious, faux, angsty 90s hard rock. It just, it's, and the movie ends up being every bit as soulless as that music, so I guess in a way that's kind of maybe sort of apropos. Um, in the sense of a soundtrack, I really like Burning Inside's cover, of, or rather Static X's cover of Burning Inside. Okay, fine. I'll give you that one because fuck yeah, Static X. But the thing is, the, the soundtrack of the original, while it wasn't really necessarily the love letter to punk that the original source material probably intended, it felt in place. It felt sure. like it added something almost operatically to the movie. Like it underscored every point that it was trying to make. Hell, right down to, in honor of Brandon Lee, Stone Temple Pilots swapping out their original choice for a soundtrack edition in favor of Big Empty. This one is just there to pretty much sell CDs and, well, irritate the audience. That's it. It's It's like being smacked in the face with a howling toddler for 90 minutes. Actually, actually, it's borderline like being smacked in the face with an explosive diarrhea-prone howling toddler. Ass end first. <laughs> you even, they, they even miss the entire point of the makeup. I mean, they don't even really get that. In the first movie, you see that Eric is putting on because, in a way, it's a remembrance of Shelley. It's something that he at, that he adds as sort of carrying a favor of his beloved into battle. In the second movie, you can kind of see it because, okay, it's a Day of the Dead thing. Hollywood always misses the entire fucking point of Day of the Dead. But you know, Also, you have to remember, this was a tangential continuation of the first story in which Sarah, all grown up, um, you know, makes him up as the crow. Wasn't his choice. Like, yeah, yeah. You need makeup in order to do your deeds. Yes, that too. The bottom line being, there was a goddamn point. There was a stated reason for it to be there. It made sense. In this movie, folks, I, I shit you not, this is what happened. After after Corvus is executed, which, by the way, happens publicly with a full black-suited executioner and with Alex, <laughs> what I, I can only describe as a half-assed Slipknot cosplay in the electric chair, <laughs> pulls off, it pulls off his... his his barbecued Freddy Krueger-looking skin, the crow makeup is already scarred on his face. 
You have earned a seat of honor at the right hand of crow-shaped blood spatters in the annals of it doesn't goddamn work that way. I like that. I thought that was... That was fucking stupid. He peeled his face off and he was basically Thing. I have expected out of nowhere Tony Schiavone to shout, How is Corvus insane? We're on a time. See you on Thunder. I enjoyed that. When he peels off it, uh, first of all, the peeling off the face I thought was gross. But when he finally, the, the, the big reveal is that he's scarred in a way that he looks like the girl, I was like, All right, sure. Why not? What in the singing and dancing hell? But uh, it, you, know why I, you know why I like that? And jump in here anytime, Ben. Um, but you know what? I like that because at least this time he doesn't take time out for makeup. You know, <laughs> I hated that about the second one, and I hate that no. about the fourth one, where it's like, no. Hey, no. I, I am I am motivated to kill all of these people. Let me quick take a time out to put on you know to put on Halloween makeup. No, because symbolically, again, that made sense. You are in. You are so incensed with revenge that you are will that you are willing to take on something that reminds you at all times what you were what you were fighting for. I'm not arguing with the first movie. I'm with you. I'm with you with that explanation. And we've already discussed the second one where he may have been walking out the door, but she stopped him and said, "Here, put this on. You look much nicer." The fourth one. But again, again, but again, in the second one. It's a Latino character, and it's Day of the Dead. And, again, Hollywood, please, I am begging you, list this right next to what the fuck hacking is and how the fuck video games work in terms of things you had goddamn better put at least a middling effort into researching before you try to incorporate it into your next plot. No, I want to see more movies like this. I want to see more movies where people are resurrected after they've been burned alive and they're... You know, their outer burned flesh uh, melts away, and on it they've got pretty markings. You know, I want to see more of that. <laughs> ben, did you want to say something real quick? I thought I, I thought I heard you pipe wanting to pipe in. It makes, no, it, makes I... about, it makes about as much sense as if he had peeled off his face and he had been fucking Twilight Sparkle underneath. I would have I would have enjoyed that as well. <laughs> ben, the answer was no. You got nothing. You got, you got nothing. I don't watch it. Uh, Twilight Sparkle under the burn uh, face. I'd, I'd watch the hell out of that. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> but, uh, no, specifically, you know, the pro makeup, uh, I don't have much to say about that. That was stupid. I have something much, much stupider that I have oh, to please, please really quick. What's that? Are, are, are we going to talk about the Rick Moranis moment? I'm not sure what <laughs> What are you thinking? Just, just hit it, Ben. Let's hear it. Um, no, because uh, we we talked a great deal last time about uh, you know how you know what things happened the, that where in which the you know the crow powers don't work that way. Um, this has the biggest. This movie has the biggest offender of that, in which apparently. You can trick the crow powers into not working anymore. Um, I, I, I know they do that in the fourth one. I don't remember in the third one. Did they? Did they also fool him into thinking the crow was dead? 
No, that it wasn't even that. That was in, in the fourth one. It's not so bad. In the fourth one, they actually, you know, they actually mortally wound the crow and right. You know, and that uh, what's his face does a uh, machete does a does a rain dance and he comes back to life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In this one, they just straight up trick Alex into thinking that he already killed the guy that he was going after, and apparently. <laughs> works and that makes the crow powers not work anymore and that's where you know that's where my head hit the desk uh, <laughs> well the crow is gullible you see i'm gonna gonna step in here and, and quickly defend this and say the crow is not a you know not not an intelligent being he's just a being of of raising the dead in vengeance and you know it's it's he's gullible you see and he's just just looking at things as they are and not uh, as they might be uh, underneath it all. And so, uh, I, fuck, what do you want from me? I, so, <laughs> Mark, so Mark, I, No, I really, uh, I'm joking. I think that was the dumbest thing in the movie. Of all the things that we can sit here far. and argue about, I'm with you 110%. That was the most asinine thing I'd seen in the entire movie. You know, far. It, it's a funny story. Very few people know this, but... On the night when this movie very first played in theaters and human eyes saw it for the very first time, if you found a quiet enough millisecond and you pointed your ear northward toward the magical, mystical, arcane land of Canada and you listened very, very closely, at the moment you realize that Tweety has been tricked, if you listen very carefully... You can hear Rick Moranis, for reasons that even he does not understand to this day, suddenly and quickly bellow out, Fool you! <laughs> and that, folks, is the Rick Moranis moment. <laughs> Spaceballs. Go watch it. Much better movie. <laughs> Basically, because there are a few times... It's one of those times where the meme just kind of fits. Because, yeah, for no god reason, for no goddamn reason... Um, we're going to fool the mystical, mysterious, and completely all-knowing powers. You know, the um, the mystical force that Joe that knows just which corpse to resurrect. They know just just exactly which one, and is able to pretty much keep uh, running metero vengeance to keep track of when the killing quota has been met. You know that mystical that mystical force that one that you pretty much that you pretty much right <laughs> right right. But you know well, you take a you take somebody else's arm off and stick a few you know subdermal implants in them and you know that'll do the trick. Well, let me posit this, and this also comes from Spaceballs. Good will never defeat evil because good is dumb. Yeah. In this well, movie, anyway. Well, this I would like to point out that when I when I proposed cutting this franchise into two parts, both of you were like, "Really, two parts? What the hell are we going to say about uh, about the last two movies?" We are. I just had to add time to this podcast. I had to add another uh, another thirty minutes to it because we were quickly running out of time, and we've only covered Salvation. So there you go. As, as people as people who have heard this podcast. 
when we really come across a shitty movie, we have we have more to say about shitty movies than we do to have a good movies. Which works. I'm officially done though. That, that works the same way in the Metal Hammer of Doom. Whenever we like an album, Robert Cooper and I just kind of sit there and, and, and stare at each other and tell stories about wrestling. But when we have a bad album, oof, we can't stop talking about it. Oh, but get ready, because we're about to be talking about one of my new all-time favorite bad movies. Good <laughs> God. I right, will so watch this again any fucking time. <laughs> Uh, as I said earlier, I watched Wicked Prayer while I was uh, at the gym today doing the, um, well, no, not a treadmill, doing the uh, um, elliptical and then uh, and then the recumbent bike. And other than having to fast forward one or two parts with some nudity, because I was at the Y and people walk around you and I don't want to offend people, uh, it was, this was just rough to get through. And again, it had promise. The plot of this movie I thought was interesting. Um, I like the I like the Southwest motif of it. You know, it took us in a different direction, at least initially, than uh, the previous three movies had. Um, there, you know, had it had a cast with people who are famous, somewhat. You know, oh, did it have a cast? <laughs> it, it had Dennis Hopper in it um, as El Nino. Oh, did it have Dennis yeah. Hopper? Hell yeah, it did. Um, but, you know, like I said, I think if you, you know, if you walk into someone's office and you say, listen, we want to do another Chrome movie, what are some of your thoughts? And you say, well, how about you know, we put this one on an, uh, on a reservation and set it between the conflict of Indians on the reservation wanting to build a casino and uh, miners in a, in a mining town that's... Uh, the, you know, where the mines are going to be shut down. Let, let's put it in the middle of that kind of tension. Okay, I'm with you so far. And then go, okay, and the villain's going to be a cult leader named Death, and he'll have three, uh, you know, and, and he'll be joined by three other horsemen of the apocalypse and Tara Reed. <sighs> All right. Uh, you're starting to lose me, but I, 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 okay, so we've got tension between the Indians and the miners and a cult leader somewhere in the middle of this. And and then what we're going to do is we're going to have the cult leader resurrect the devil himself and become Lucifer. Oh, for fuck's sake. I mean, I don't know about you guys and, and, your, and, and your patience for this sort of thing, but if you get... I'm okay with, with them resurrecting somebody to go on a, a tour of vengeance long enough to save the soul of his beloved... Much past that, I'm not into the mysticism. I'm not into magic. I don't, not in this kind of a movie. And when when it became uh, a Mortal Kombat fight between the undead zombie and the resurrected devil, the newly resurrected devil, I wanted to throw my tablet out of the Y. It, it became a little too what? much. Oh, Mark, you so didn't look closely enough at all the moving pieces here. Oh, oh, please, Sean. I'm going to sit back and let you take over. Go ahead. So, show, oh. show me a wise movie master. What moving pieces of this piece of shit did I miss? Well, okay, Smarty McAss. I will gladly do that. Okay, first off, this movie does not just have Dennis Hopper in it. Oh, no. Oh, no. This doesn't just have pimp coat wearing Dennis Hopper. This has full-on 
Pimpin' Mac Daddy Huggy Bear, Dennis Hopper. <laughs> you know what? Tara Reid is, you know what? She's Tara Reid. But on the bright side, at least she didn't get topless, and at least the twins weren't horribly misshapen by this point. We don't just we don't just have a complete utter dipshit mature groupie looking pansy playing the crow this time. Oh no, we have Edward Blood type heroin furlong playing our hero in this in this case. Uh, Jimmy Cuervo, which by the way, apologies to Black Americans everywhere. Yeah, that's right, folks. Our hero's name in this one is Jim Crow in a story rife with racism. (laughs) Someone didn't think this through very clearly. But, hey, let's move on. I thought they thought it through quite well. But, hey, let's move on because we have an awful lot of strawberry shortcake with strippers on top to get to here. Uh, No, uh Oh, wise one! It is not just a cult leader. It's not just it's not just anybody who wants to be the devil incarnate. It is David Boreanaz basically playing Angelus for ninety minutes and clearly having the time of his life, like it was an all expenses paid trip for two weeks to the highest tier of heaven. He is just having an absolute blast and. Oh, oh, we'll get to the part where that reaches absolute orgasmic critical mass in just a little bit, babies. Sit tight. And, uh, yeah, his Horseman of the Apocalypse, well, I'm glad that's going to get a chance to get brought up because they're played by Mouse from the Matrix, who for some reason plays the Horseman War, who at times appears to be a complete and utter pussy for some reason. Um... Pestilence is played by, you know what, considering the fact that he, that he spin kicks a barrel of pesticides into ignition, I'm just going to call him Jimmy Wang Yang. <laughs> oh, and to top it all off, who gets to play Famine? Tito Goddamn Ortiz. And if you don't know who Tito Ortiz is, he was a former light heavyweight champion in the UFC, currently fighting for Bellator um, in what appears to be a, the occasional pro wrestling angle. <laughs> and you know what? Somehow, some way or another, he manages to be one of the least, least entertaining parts of the movie, but it's just simply the fact that you have to ponder the possibility that one day the Huntington Beach dump shit is actually could actually be the harbinger of the end of days. At which point, you know, we're all going to get a little bit of a chance to go run and hide and prepare ourselves because at some point he's going to pull up lame and he's going to have to explain to Death himself, uh, hey, look, I don't know about you, but if you had to fight with a fractured skull and bruised ribs and a bad neck and four bruised ovaries and, and a, a tongue-generated squeak, and a serrated squiddly spooge, and a hurt vagina, you'd be hurting too. It's Tito Ortiz. You know it's going to happen. So, no. And then, 
on top of that, on top of that, because we need a, just, a, just a little bit of an LSD-dipped cherry on top of this cake, you have to end this movie with first the, the prelude of Danny fucking Trejo, the resurrection dancing magical cholo, <laughs> and then one of the most hysterically awesome, hysterically awesomely bad wire fight I have ever seen between dipshit emo John Connor and fucking Angelus. You know what? The cast alone, when I realized who all they would be playing and when and when Ben kind of roughly summed it up for me, I was pretty much in from the moment he said Edward Furlong is Furlong is the crow, and David Boreanaz is a satanic cult leader. Sold. I I will take it because those of you who have ever watched at any point the likes of either Angel or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know that when David Boreanaz is playing good, when he's playing a hero. Hey, he's okay. He's all right. You could do a lot worse. But when he gets to cut loose and he gets to play a gleeful, unrepentant baddie, oh, ho, ho, kids, bust out the popcorn. You are in for a ride. And he does not disappoint once, not one single time. Ben, <laughs> go ahead. Fill in anything that I missed. Oh, God, what else is left? Uh <laughs> Um, I guess I could say a couple of things, um, you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit more personally, um, because when Sean and I watched this movie together, like, I, I told him that I wanted to do that for a very specific reason, and that is because in some, some way, shape, or form, whether it be, and I wish I had Skyped this, I wish I had video Skyped this, but I'll take the you know the Facebook Messenger reaction. But I had to have Sean's reaction to Furlong in the freaking crow makeup because that's a watershed moment in this movie when you know when you've been introduced for about twenty twenty five minutes. However, the hell long it takes for this for this moron to die. Uh, where. You know, when you're introduced to him and you're given no reason whatsoever to give a shit about him, uh, you know, I, I think we, we took to task, you know, the, this dubious uh, practice that, that this guy had of hoarding scorpions in, in Ziploc oh, baggies. Oh, yes, yes, for for no reason whatsoever, because, <laughs> for, uh, for apparently, because fucking reason. I couldn't even make up something ridiculous to go with this. It, for whatever reason, this bizarro little jagoff has a habit of picking up and hoarding full-grown live scorpions in a ziplock in his refrigerator. There was a sign in the trading post, that's why. Okay. In the trading, in the trading post where the girlfriend works, there's a sign that says by scorpions. Okay. Why? Here's, okay, here's the little problem with this. 
from what Ben and I can tell, this is supposedly set in Arizona. Uh, you know what? We kill those little fuckers on sight. Right alongside Havelina and Rattlesnakes. Okay? But, for whatever reason, even if that were a valid reason for that, okay, this little moron gets dressed to the nine, let's be generous and call it the five and a half, yeah. to, go and, to, go and, to go and ride in on his cholo bike to propose marriage, he brings along a Ziploc bag of these things right alongside his corsage like it were wine and roses. So much so that when, so much so that when our antagonist, semi-antagonist, um, douchebag, uh, racist cop pulls him o- pulls him over on his bike and happens to see him, he just holds him up and literally says, almost like he were plucking it like a daisy right out of my mind. Really. <laughs> it's it's like something you would expect written in to a Robert Rodriguez lighthearted style spoof, like um ma- like Machete or um uh Planet Terror, like something you like know, that. Fu- but no, it's funny. It's watching like- the hang- watching the hanging scene, I actually got a very uh, and there was a couple points in the movie where I definitely got a um. What was it? Nuns with big guns, kind of a feeling. <laughs> oh, new nuns with big guns! God, yes. Yes. Hold on, let me uh, let me uh, let me build back up to this though, because um, this is this is the main thing that I got out of this movie. Um, you know, aside from all the, you know, all of the entertaining stuff happens seriously happens when you know mostly when Furlong is off the screen, but his one shining moment of unintentional hilarity is, you know, after they've spent all this time building him up or attempting to build him up because they failed miserably with that. You, you really like after all the time they spend, you know, trying to make you care about him, you, it doesn't take, he still comes off as this sad sack, you know, pouty douche. And, you know, yeah. And, and and when he's finally offed by uh, David Boran, and by the way, that was a bad choice of putting, you know, putting Edward Furlong on his last shit to give uh, again, you know, trying to act against uh, David Boreanaz, who just is having the time of his life. He didn't stand a chance acting against him in terms of, you know, and don't get me even get me started when when Dennis Hopper shows up and then it's becoming a two way foot race. It's becoming a two way oh, oh, oh. sprint to see who can feast on more scenery between the two of them. But oh, 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 against oh, oh, David Boreanaz, oh, against David Boreanaz alone, he's got no chance. At, you know, Furlong's got no chance to be seen in this movie. Um, but you know when he's finally off and they do the whole crow resurrection sequence and. He's, you know, setting fire to his trailer, and he's, you know, throwing, you know, it's, I guess it's supposed to be symbolic, but at this point it's just, uh, you know, it, it's just not taking, because once again, 
you're trying to hit all the same emotional notes as the original, and it's so far removed from everything that made those emotional notes in the original resonate that it's just you know you you you're banging you you're banging an empty oil drum at this point uh, <laughs> and then and then and then you get that first shot of Edward Furlong in the goddamn crow makeup. <laughs> And that's exactly the reaction Sean had, and that's exactly the reaction I had. Because from that point on, like, you couldn't have screwed this up harder, the reveal of this guy in the makeup. And at that point, this movie no longer became... This This, this movie was thoroughly taken away from Edward Furlong. I decided on this. This movie was thoroughly taken away from Edward Furlong. The moment you see him in the crow makeup and you firmly decide, dude, I can no longer take you seriously anymore. I can't. I'm done. Check out. I'm, I'm, no, I'm walking away. I'm dropping the microphone. I am walking away from this. No, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Not today. Not tomorrow. Not ever. No. Pouty, you know, makeup face Edward Furlong, and, you know, I'm supposed to buy him as the crow and as the protagonist of this movie. And I think even the filmmaker, even the people involved in making this movie knew that he didn't stand a chance in hell because from that moment on, it wasn't his movie anymore. Yeah, I don't David know his movie. How during a table reading during pre-production when they're working on, like, makeup and taking stills of him to box art or whatever. They didn't, you know, take a step back and go, this was miscast. Let's go back to the let's, – let's recast the lead uh, as somebody who's going to be a strong enough strong enough against David Boreanaz because uh, Edward Furlong does not fit the bill. Oh, but no, fuck he me. went full steam ahead. Oh, he looked like Zooey Deschanel with Buck Wild with a Hot Topic gift card. <laughs> yeah. With that tousled hair and that sexy, sexy pout. <laughs> Your magic girl of Diablo, folks. Here's the thing. <laughs> it's like the goth look can be, can be an interesting look for somebody, you know, but you have to be able to pull that off. And when you don't pull it off, you look like every – think people make fun of goths for, you know, and, and that's unfortunately, like, I remember looking at the box art for Wicked Prayer and some of the posters when I was looking, when I was trying to find art to put on the podcast for tonight, and if I didn't know that was Edward, first of all, it looked like Edward fucking Scissorhands, okay, like, <laughs> without knowing that was Edward Furlong, the first time I saw the movie poster for Wicked Prayer, I'm like, why do they have Johnny Depp in the Edward Scissorhands makeup? Like, oh, shit, that's Edward Fur. oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> You know, in the first two movies, the main characters at least got a burial. You know, you want to know one way you can probably tell that they just knew that that zombie John Connor was not going to be a be a match for 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 happy happy joy joy Angelus and huggy bear Dennis Hopper. The fact that his grand resurrection in this movie 
came from him emerging in a fridge that was set adrift. A refrigerator. Yeah. All, that needed, all that needed was Indiana Jones stumbling out uh, behind him. Oh, wrong movie. Oh, I made that joke already. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> Edward Furlong, if you ever hear this, please, please, by all means, consider a second career as a stand-in on New Girl. <laughs> because it's not like that show is going to get worse anytime soon. <laughs> as a as a quick aside, as a quick aside, I, I you know I'm trying to establish my own head canon here. I, I choose to believe because going very quickly back to Crow Salvation, at some point Eric Mabius like somehow at some point takes it off of somebody. But it's not, for a while, for about like twenty, thirty minutes, he's walking around in the pimp coat from Candyman. Um, <laughs> I choose that somehow oh, yeah. Dennis Hopper found that coat and and he was wearing it in Wicked Prayer. <laughs> oh, I have God. to tell you, I was I was in the second half of my workout during that scene, and I was like, oh, I know you guys are having fun with this, and that is your right, and absolutely. You know, it, you know, it, Sean is now verbally acting out the meme of the guy with the afro, you know, who takes the popcorn and says, go. Um, usually posted on a 411 uh, thing where someone pissed off like Ben Affleck's been cast as Batman. In any case, that's fine. I thought that scene was interminably long. Dennis Hopper and David Boreanaz playing ping pong with the scenery, I have to say, did nothing for me. I, I understand you guys are having fun with this. And 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 then and I hear Sean going, "What you know, Radlich, have you no soul?" Honestly, and it may have just it may be because I was tired and I was working out, but I was like, "Oh, get on with this already." I think <laughs> if I if I can, like, you know, I you know I can understand that. I think at at this point, I, I think at the point that we had reached, and and this was like the second time that I watched Wicked Prayer, I had long resigned myself to not taking any part of this movie seriously. Like, I was right. done, like, trying to accept this as, as a serious Crow sequel. If I had to be forced to accept this as a serious Crow sequel, this movie would have pissed me off greatly. So the only well, way I can deal with this movie is to, you know, look at it as some kind of ridiculous parody of some kind. And I totally get that. You have to understand that when I when when, I, when we decide we're going to do a podcast on something, I really I, I watch things critically. It's part of why I tend to be more forgiving um, for these movies, and maybe I should be. It's also that's also my gimmick. You know, I'm the I'm the shit movie defender. Um, and even and there are some where you know <laughs> you're going to have to call on Matt Murdock because even I can't defend this shit. But uh, <laughs> but but that's my thing. That's my role on this show. And it's hard, so it's hard for me sometimes to have fun with a scene that you can clearly have fun with because I'm trying to watch critically and I'm and I'm trying to figure out why things are the way they are and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm looking for a rationale even if it's bad I still need there still needs to be a reason why and that whole scene was in ter- in terms of what it led to the movie in, in, in a serious way, not in the way you guys are talking about where it's Mystery Science Theater 3000, but in a serious way, that scene and the length it took and the time it took to get there lent nothing to the narrative. It was, you know... That's true. It lent That's nothing to the narrative. True, 
And the fact that, you know, the, the plot of this thing is that David Boreanaz is trying to raise the devil, I already was, like, fed up with the movie. Because it's, you know, because that whole opening sequence where they're doing a very Robert Rodriguez-style stopping of the camera and this print on the screen of who these characters are and all that, you, you've set up tension, as I said before, between the Indians and the miners, and then there's a prison break. Uh, you know, they get the what they get the David Boreanaz out of uh, out of the Chan Gang, and then the movie takes us hard right into this other area that I already have no interest in. I have no interest in a quote unquote satanic cult leader trying to raise the devil. I'm just not interested. And can okay. someone then explain what, to me? What, hang on, what's that? Can someone explain to me why, if he's trying to raise the devil, he felt the need to kill the two of them in the first place? How much Buffy have you ever watched? None. I wasn't. A, I've oh. seen the movie. I've seen the movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer with uh, what's his face, Pee Wee Herman, which I enjoyed. I never watched the series. Uh, quick fun note, though: when I was an, when I was an actor in Hollywood, uh, I was an extra on uh, on an episode of Angel. Or was it Buffy? Nice. I don't remember what it was. One of those uh, two shows, I was extra. Okay. I'm going to look for you on DVD then. Okay, you know what? Anybody who has ever watched the first two seasons of that show, hell, scratch that, anybody who has ever just managed to watch the second season of Buffy, which, by the way, little fun Sean fact here, is one of my all-time favorite seasons of any show ever in the history of television, um, you know that when you hear David Boreanaz is playing somebody who wants to bring about the apocalypse, oh, God, do your ears perk up. You just <laughs> might pull half a heart on at that one because you remember the second half of that season and just exactly how David plays that. And you know what? He does not disappoint for a single fraction of a heartbeat. Look, sometimes you actually have a script that is so utterly, interminably bad. And this happens often in terms of movies that are ripping off much more, success, uh, much more successful ones and trying to make a buck off their legacy. Hi, Terminator. How you doing? And in this case, you know what? They had run out of even those things to play with. You didn't even necessarily have a, um, a a pithy bit of fan service to something resembling the iconic opening voiceover, well, opening and closing voiceovers from The Crow. You can't even do that. You're not even really to that, really to much of an extent, trying that hard to even lift shots from from, from the first movie anymore because God knows you've done that too. In this case, you have one of those times when a script is so utterly bad and everybody knows it that you that the lead, at least a couple of the leads have decided, you know, there's no way even we can save this. It's not going to happen. It is not at all even remotely possible. So let's just go out there and amuse ourselves. That, and, and you know, credit to Danny Trejo. He's one of the people who actually tries, and he shows that with time, he's really matured into a 
full-blown actor. I got a hand in that one. I, I, I got I got nothing but respect for him for the genuine effort he puts out. But in terms of Hopper and Boreanaz, oh god, they just decided to just go nuts and make it a party at one point. And miraculously, it keeps this thing amusing. It's something else that Rowdy Roddy Piper also has to do in a lot of his movies. Uh, he just looks at it and realizes, well, this is under shit, but if I'm going down, I'm going down swinging. And he, <laughs> and he does. He has an utter absolute ball. And, oh, God, that scene in the church, it was amazing. It was like, it was like a wonderful collision of the second season of Buffy with Speed, with From Dusk Till Dawn, with Tara Reid. <laughs> that, that's, that's what it was and outside all the while you have you have undead Zooey Deschanel having a fight with Mouse from the Matrix who for some reason has decided to dress himself in a TNT tuxedo it, Oh, and by the way, might I add, just to top all this off, just to make sure that everybody is remaining invested in this, let, let's, have, let's have Huggy Bear Hopper officiate a wedding between full-on between full crazier-than-crazy Cuckoo Cocoa for Cocoa Puffs, Crazy Pants Manners, Angelus and Tara Reese. A wedding that concludes with the line, I now pronounce you the devil and his shorty. Kiss the bride, motherfucker. I will give you this. My wife wants to renew our wedding vows at some point, something I am oh, actively God. fighting. My wife wants to renew our wedding vows. And, and have a whole, like, new wedding for whatever the reasons girls like to do that sort of thing. I'm going to now put a writer in there that says, only if it's officiated with the line, kiss your bride, motherfucker. Then I'm going <laughs> to it, uh, it is just... Oh, oh, and by the way, might I add, it also includes... It also includes uh, Zombie John Connor getting strung up over the altar, not so much like Christ, but more like a haphazardly hung Johnny the Homicidal Maniac marionette. To such the extent that I told Ben while we were watching, I said, I'm not going to lie, dude. Every time they show, they show him, I start humming, I got no strings on me to myself. Yes, gonna... I mean, because, you know what, Deschanel of the undead here is actually so is actually so ridiculous looking throughout this entire movie that gets stolen from him that I'm not even completely sure it was scripted that nobody can keep a straight face while looking at him. Because when, when, when Horseman of the Apocalypse, Jimmy Wang Yang, is laughing in your, is laughing in your face, as, as you're pretty much squeezing the life out of him, you have 
failed. I got to go over to Ben for a second. And in the interest of time, we're going to wrap after this. And every, this is the first movie where you see the murder that bequeaths the raising of the dead in real time. Um, You know, in the first movie, it's all done in flashbacks or over the credits. Second movie, um, I believe, again, done in flashbacks. Uh, Third movie, they execute the guy in real time, but the thing that caused it to happen is done in flashbacks. This one, there's flashbacks to other stuff, but they they kill the two of them in real time. They hang them in the trading post. Now, again, and I, and I won't end this podcast until I get this question answered in some way, what was the point of killing the two of them when his greater goal was to raise the devil? What purpose did they play? Um, oh, I think I, I think I I think I know at least half the answer to this one. All right, well, go right ahead. Okay. okay, at least part of it has to do with some part of the ritual, which I will add is never satisfactorily explained. I admit that nope. for some reason requires that Tara Reed somehow obtain the blue eyes of... Help me out here, Ben. It was either... It was the blue eyes of something. Was it the blue eyes of a virgin that she was supposed to get from Senorita Chichis? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was supposed to be the blue eyes of... The blue eyes of a virgin. So that is why we have the moment in which... Tara carves her eyes out. Um, now, the closest I can come to explaining why they also hung them, combination of number one, Angelus, and number two, the fact that in flashbacks they show that uh, Jimmy and... Oh, help me out here, Ben. For whatever reason, I'm drawing a total blank on uh, Boreanaz's character's name. I'd have to look it up myself. Well, in in any case, um, Boreanaz and... um, Luke. Luke was was David Boreanaz's character. Yes, thank you. That um, uh, Eddie Baby and Luke have got a little bit of a history with each other. And that, for, and that somehow they were once actually interminably close, and somehow they were kind of pulled apart in some way, shape, or form by Senorita Chichis. Um, but... But they did time together. That's, that's about all the explanation that we get. And, and again, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit, you know, hilarious. Well, probably not hilariously. You're probably all getting sick of it by now. I'm going to quit riffing for a moment to actually point out what is a genuine flaw with it. And that is the fact that there's a real stark contrast between what worked in the first movie and what didn't work here. And oddly, it's not the same kind of contrast that we've been harping on. This movie actually really tries to go in a fairly different direction from the original in that it tries to give it a more extended, 
detail-ridden, overly complex plot. Whereas the first one was a really very simple urban gothic revenge story. But it was an urban revenge story that had a heart and soul to it because of the manner in which we were introduced to our protagonist, uh, the manner in which he was briefly explained to us in really not very many terms, but eh, let's face it, about all we really needed. But also the fact that it was he was introduced in such an orderly fashion and before our villains of the movie so that we had a chance to really become engaged with him before we met these other really hyperkinetic and entertaining characters. In this one, we're introduced to our antagonists right off the bat. And again, they are so over-the-top, absolutely insane that we automatically kind of like them. We automatically want to see more of them. But then from there, we're introduced to other movies wherein we realize that Jimmy Boy and Senorita Chichis are just two of the most really dull people that we could ever not give a shit about. We're not given a relatable reason to care about them. So, hence, by the time Jimmy is killed... We don't give a live scorpion in a sandwich bag what happens to him. Because we never really cared before that. Okay, he's dead. I've given more shit about the lead-off kills in Friday the 13th movies. <laughs> so it, it, fails right, it fails right off the bat in that I care, I care more about General Pussy, Tito Ortiz, Jimmy Wang, Jimmy Wang Yang, and Happy Happy Angelus. Oh, and of course, Bitch Better Have My Money, Dennis Hopper, and Terry. <laughs> then, I, then, then I do about Zoe Dacia Dumbass and his, you know, dead 15 minutes of total screen time at best girlfriend. So, I mean, in that sense, you've really failed at telling a complete story but, on the right side, you succeeded admirably at giving me a heaping helping of, of gravy-slathered schlock. So, hey, thanks for that. <laughs> schlock is definitely a good way to put it. All right, I have, in the interest of both time and interest, I have nothing more to say about this. I think I've, I've said my piece. Sean has certainly said his. Ben, you got the final word on Wicked Prayer mostly, but uh, in general, the um, the franchise, since this is our last show dealing with this. Last words, take us home, and then we'll get into plugs. All right. Um, I'll try to take this back to some measure of a dignified place. In leaving, <laughs> with, leaving Wicked Prayer, I will... Okay, this is how I'll leave Wicked Prayer. I will quote Michael Wincott from the first Crow movie. At least she put a smile on my face. (laughs) All right, fair enough. Ben, tell everyone where to read your comic books, where they're going to see you at, where they can find your art, your home address, your phone number, and your blood type. I don't know my blood type, but... 
I have I have plenty of plugs. Uh, I probably should know my blood type. That's probably something you should know it about my age, but I don't. I'll find out later. Okay, my plugs. I have many. All right. I, uh, as always, as ever, I write, draw, and self-publish a comic by the name of Soul Exodus. You can find it online at my website, soulexo.com. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash soulexo, and you can find me on Twitter at soulexocomic. Um, I was just this past weekend at East Coast Comic Con in uh, New Jersey. Um, it, it was a good time. Um, you know, it was enjoyable, if not particularly profitable. Um, from that, I, I want to shout out some, some friends of mine, um, at uh, Moonbase Cosplay. You know, these are a group of very dedicated cosplayers that uh, do some absolutely awesome costumes and, and, and attend conventions regularly in, in my neck of the woods, um, including, uh, you know, one of the best, uh, respectively, one of the best uh, She-Hulk, Spider-Gwen, and uh, Riddick cosplays I've probably ever seen. Uh, check them out on, on Facebook under Moonbase. They do like they they do really cool stuff, and they you know they have uh, tons of different uh, costumes that you can check out. Um, shout out to my friends at Made to Fail podcast. Once again, Made to Fail dot net. Their new episode has just come out this week. You should all check it out. It actually has to do with uh, conventions and that sort of thing. Um, a big shout out to uh, a friend of mine by the name of uh, Noel Thingval who actually supplied me with the uh, infamous uh, Rob Zombie Crow 2037 script. Um, He is a fountain and a repository of uh, countless movie screenplays, uh, both known and forgotten and uh, never having seen the light of day. But I want to plug him real quick. He's got a, uh, he's got a several podcasts, the, the, uh, first and foremost um, is one called Masters of Carpentry, which uh, deals basically with John Carpenter's entire extensive filmography. It is a really good podcast, um, and I'm not just saying that because I did banner art for him, although I did, and um, it's one of the ones I'm most proud of, but uh, you know they seem to like it too. But yeah, his podcast is great. If you're a fan of John Carpenter or horror in general, you should really check it out. It's uh, mastersofcarpentry.blogspot.com. Uh, another friend of mine, uh, L. Anna Lenz, uh, who uh, has a book out called The Opry Legacy. Uh, you can check that out at uh, freelorient at uh, blogspot.com. That's L O I R A N T. And also a comic called Wretched Creatures. You can find a Wretched Creatures comic. Tumblr.com. We are also doing some work together. Uh, on a as yet untitled uh, comic that hopefully should be done very soon, hopefully this year. Uh, she's a great, fantastic writer, and I enjoy working her with her. I think I'm doing the best work of uh, of my career so far working with her. So please check her out, check out her book, check out her comics, and show us both some love when uh, our work, our project comes out. Um, Apparently, uh, unless, you know, barring some unforeseen, uh, you know, difficulties, I will probably be back on source material this coming, uh, this, uh, this coming Monday at, I believe, 1030 Eastern. Um, we are going to be talking 
most likely we'll be talking Daredevil and Man Without Fear by uh, Frank Miller and John Romita Jr. Uh, that should be a good time. I'm a huge fan of both of those particular artists, huge influences on me. I should have a lot to talk about there. Uh, next week, and Mark, you, you may be able to help me out with this, um, Revolution Broadcasting Network has started a uh, podcast uh, covering the recently released uh, Daredevil series on Netflix. Um, I respectfully bowed out of appearing on the first one just because I had to catch up on some things. Uh, but I will be on for the next one, and Mark, you can take it away as to when that will be, please. This Wednesday. This Wednesday? Okay. Yep. At what uh, ten o'clock, I believe. I have to get with Gavin to make sure, but unless I unless I hear differently, it's ten o'clock uh, Wednesdays. Cool. So I should be on there, and we should be covering what turned out to be actually my favorite episodes of the series so far. Anyway, so it worked out pretty well. Um, finally, um, this is kind of a this is not a huge huge announcement because uh, I am not able you know I, I actually prefer not to disclose too much information about this but um, I have in the past mentioned um, I, I work with uh, with a very talented fellow by the name of Lewis Lovehog some people know him uh, better as Linkara of the top mm-hmm. fourth wall fame um, I have. You know, been working on this comic uh, entitled Revolution of the Mask. We're still in the process of finding uh, of finding a way to get that out in the world. What uh, what has happened in the interim is Mr. Lovehog actually has raised just shy of sixty four thousand dollars on Indiegogo Jesus. To, to produce his Atop the Fourth Wall movie. Um, and I I cleared it with him to make sure it was okay to say this and, you know, uh, you call this an exclusive if you want, whatever. Um, I'm actually very proud to announce that I will be doing some work on the Atop the Fourth Wall movie. What? Um, it will be art-related. It, it, art it will be comic book-related. Uh, that's all I'm comfortable disclosing at this time, but, yeah, it's kind of a big deal and um Lewis actually has put a lot of faith in me to uh do something that I hope will be very cool and very entertaining and very fun for everybody that uh that sees it when it uh, finally is completed and reaches reaches the world. Um so yeah, that's a that's cool and that's a big deal for me. Um and finally as always as ever Long Road to Ruin. I do title card artwork for Long Road to Ruin. You guys have been great to me. I hope to continue to uh, keep working with you guys. And uh, as I always, or, you know, fairly recently enough, as I enjoy saying, I like to make friends through art. And I like to think that I've done that uh, with you guys and with the, the whole Revolution Broadcasting family and all of the people that I have mentioned so far that I'm working with. Um, you know, this is my way of, you know, this is my way of giving back to to the world, you know, as cheesy as that may sound. This is what I do best. I draw, I create art, and uh, that's the best way I know of to make friends. And it's worked out pretty well for me so far. So, yeah, make friends hey, where to can art. People, where can people harass you on Twitter? 
On Twitter, uh, once again, Solex, at SolexoComic. Okay. Ben, uh, always a delight. Hope you ha- hope to have you on again uh, later on in the year if there's something that catches your fancy. Um, I know we're going to be doing uh, Iron Man next. I'll give out the date on that in a second. And then Mad Max um, after that. Uh, we've I got, got all three oh, Mad Max movies standing by so far. <laughs> we got the, the Highlander, Dark Man, the Tom Clancy movies, Terminator, the first three. Uh, Smokey and the Bandit, Jaws, The Mighty Ducks, Chronicles of Riddick, Long um, Long Road to Ruin, <laughs> Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, the O God series, and Porky's uh, are all listed for this year. So you know if you want to jump out at any of those, you know you know the deal. But uh, we certainly appreciate your time, your your, your uh, con- contribution to this show, and uh, your artwork. So oh, always a pleasure. Sean, what do you got going on in your world? Oh, it's time for Coffee Corner, coffee corner with Comer. <laughs> uh, with, with all apologies to my favorite YouTube gamer, Dodger, for co-opting the title of her show for that one. I promise I shall never do it again. Um, well, a couple things I got I got to run down on this one. Uh, first off, this is sort of a bittersweet time of anniversaries. Uh, for, on the happy side, this, well, actually today, right here, right now, marks three years to the day that I arrived here in Arizona. So this was a fantastic, fantastic way to uh, celebrate a very special time of the year for me right alongside two of my very, very best friends, and I'm not exaggerating that, one single iota at all. So that means the world to me that I've had the chance to do that tonight and that I get to come out here every two weeks and do what I love on what by now, let's face it, should pretty much just start becoming just a three-hour live stream of us talking about movies at some point. Um, that's, uh, that's the sweet part. The bitter part, although it does lead to the start of my actual plug plugs, is the fact that we are also upon the one-year anniversary of the day when the Internet really lost one of its one of its gentlest souls and somebody whose entertainment value and his personality and his warmth really touched a lot of people. And I'm not exaggerating that in that way that some people say that about everybody who dies. Uh, Justin Carmichael, uh, Juario, for those of you who may know him from his days on uh, That Guy with the Glasses, was somebody who was at least acquainted with several friends of mine, with at least one of them, was a very dear, close, personal friend. And I speak from experience that pretty much just about everybody who met him absolutely loved him. And he loved and appreciated his audience. And fittingly, on this, the one-year anniversary of his death, uh, one of his colleagues and close friends has completed a movie that he had begun work on before he died that, at least, at least that's my understanding of it, has become kind of a, a trip, both a tribute to him and sort of a, la- and sort of a last goodbye. Uh, it's called... Farewell, Famicom and Rider. 
and it's actually the swan song of a character that he himself created. And uh, Channel Awesome's uh, Kaylin Saucedo, I, I apologize terribly if I mispronounced her name, uh, better known to a lot of her fans as Mars Girl, and a lot of Justin's friends and colleagues have put a lot of effort into finishing this up. It is now live. It actually premiered on Mars Girl's Twitch stream last night, and you can now catch it over on Mars Girl's YouTube channel. So, I urge you, go check out youtube.youtube.com slash marsgirl, that's M-A-R-Z-G-U-R-L, and go give this a look. Um, because, in my opinion, I've, I've made no secret that I'm I'm very critical of a lot of the tone of the internet geek community sometimes, but Justin was really one of the best of the bunch in terms of how entertaining he was and how I've seen how much I've seen he really meant to the people he left behind. So please uh, go show Mars Girl some support and go show this wonderful project some as well. Uh, moving on from that to a couple other things. Um, kind of the same way Ben did. Uh, big shout out to my very good friend, Miss Allison Pregler. Uh, go check her out over at phelous.com, P-H-E-L-O-U-S. Go check out the work of uh, Allison, uh, her immensely, immensely talented boyfriend, Phelan, um, uh, Andrew W. Dickman, Sad Panda, just everybody, everybody over on over on that channel, puts out some of the most entertaining geek commentary on the Internet. Go contribute to their Patreon pages as well. Uh, help them continue to keep the lights on by doing what they love. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, the show this week continues to be brought to you with no commercial interruptions, which not necessarily a good thing because also means we don't have sponsors. Sad face. By, <laughs> by both... Uh, Nick Diaz's Stockton Cat Jitsu School. Call today at 209-634-5789 for your introductory first week of lessons. And my continued efforts to make a living doing what I love, that is online marketing, via Canvas Content Marketing Solutions. Uh, if you have a website or a business that needs to bolster your search engine rankings, Please, by all means, email me today at canvascontent, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can also find me at canvascontent, at canvascontent on Twitter. And let me know today what I can do to start helping you build a bigger online presence for your business. Uh, other plugs, other things we've got going on. Um, as we mentioned, we're on the cusp of getting to review one of my favorite up among the... Uh, vaunted Marvel movies. We get to review all three Iron Man movies. I don't even completely hate Iron Man 3. So uh, that is, God, immensely enjoyable. Doesn't even seem to do it justice. <laughs> it, it really, really doesn't. Um, we have coming up in about the next month and a half uh, when the brand spanking new third series of Orange is the New Black premieres. Mark and I are bringing back Litchfield Live, our week, our four-week recap show that is going to go episode by episode 
well, episode by episode, three episodes at a time, uh, throughout the entire series. So if you watch this little gem that has become uh, an icon, kind of an emblem of the Netflix empire, uh, tune in, tune in, call in, offer, offer to chat on the show. Uh, bring it on, guys. Um, let's see. Going right down the line. Oh, if you have a hankering for some chic geek jewelry and other accessories, uh, by all means, go visit our good friend Alexis's business page, HoneysuckleRoseCreations.com. Uh, she specializes in 100% upcycled handmade geek crafts, um, including custom orders that can help you honor your favorite fandom, whether you're Marvel or DC, whether you're Star Wars or Star Star Wars or Star Trek, uh, Game of Thrones, Pokemon, Dragon Ball Z, Nintendo, Sega, PlayStation, Xbox, whatever it is. She has even recently rolled out, and it's going to be debuting exclusively at conventions very soon, a line of jewelry honoring the Five Nights at Freddy's trilogy. I've seen them myself. They are top-notch. She did her research. God bless her. She watched... uh, Markiplier's entire gloriously hilarious YouTube Let's Play of the entire series. So go on over to Honeysuckle Rose Creations, like her page on on Facebook, find her on Etsy, and uh, show her some love. Show her some love because she's still got the uh, dog that we had together in our relationship, and uh, my little Toby needs food that he can steal off her and her fiancé's plate. (laughs) <laughs> that's, uh, that's, and that's helping, helping keep that on the table. So remember, you go buy you a pair of Green Lantern cufflinks, and that is going to keep salmon in my dog's mouth. Okay. Buy jewelry. Feed my puppy fish. All right. Uh, <laughs> you, you come for the reviews, you stay for the tangents. What can I say? Yeah, yeah, people. Uh, Cooper's always good about that. You know, the best part of the show is the plugs. Um, teasing, <laughs> All right, uh, so some housekeeping in line with the plugs here that have been done. Uh, we are taking off for a few weeks, not going on a hiatus, just there's just some scheduling conflicts. I have to actually pull my calendar for this now. Um, so no Metal Hammer of Doom next week. No long road to ruin the week after. We've got other things going on. Um, in the meantime, continue to come back to the Rattlers and Broadcasting Network for everyone else's podcast, like the 401 Ground and Pound Show, source material uh, from the Chief Seats, etc. I have no idea what Rob is doing with uh, uh, Everyone Loves the Bad Guy, but presumably that will be back someday. Um, the next time you will be able to check out Long Road to Ruin will be May 7th, and I'm going to work backwards here. I will be on Source Material Monday, May 4th, uh, to talk Demon in a Bottle, because it's Avengers Week here on the Rattle Broadcasting Network. Uh, Wednesday, uh, who's his, what's his name? Robert Winfrey and I will be on the Summer Blockbuster Train, and we will be reviewing... Marvel's The Avengers, Age of Ultron. And then Long Road to Ruin is May 7th. We will be doing the Iron Man trilogy. A week after that, 
uh, Metal Hammer of Doom will be back from its couple of weeks hiatus, uh, and we'll be reviewing the new Corporal Clonny. Uh The week after that, on the 20th, Robert Winfrey and I will be reviewing Mad Max Fury Road, and then on the long road to ruin, because we're all about synergy here, we will be looking at the Mad Max trilogy. And Ben, did I hear you say you wanted in on that? Uh, we'll see. As I just said that you know I have I, I've acquired all three movies and I'm ready to sit down and start researching. Okay, I, that's, I just wanted to make sure I understood you. Um, and then uh, the Thursday after that is uh, on the Metal Hammer of Doom. We'll be reviewing the new Faith No More. So uh, that's what we got going on there. Um, in addition to reviewing uh, the Avengers and Mad Max on the 27th, we'll be reviewing Tomorrowland. And then on uh, June 3rd, the day after my birthday, I am almost 40 years old, folks, we'll be reviewing the new rock vehicle uh, disaster film, San Andreas. Uh, like I said, in the meantime... For the next three weeks and the one that's already in the can, uh, check out Gavin Napier from the Casual Heroes hosting his own uh, Netflix review show, Daredevil. I was on the first episode, and there'll be an array of Rattledge and Broadcasting family members uh, on the next three shows. Ben's going to be on, the, on this one coming up. Uh, we expect to have Pat Mullen, Robert Winfrey, uh, anybody that, that wants to get in, uh, get in on the Daredevil action while there is action to get on. Uh, lastly, coming up May 2nd, as may, many of you may know if you're a boxing aficionado, is Pacquiao versus Mayweather. Sometime between now and then, there will be a Rattledge Broadcasting uh, boxing special discussing the history of the fight that almost never happened and discussing uh, any um, you know, possibilities of what might happen in that fight. And then after the fight happens, we'll do uh, a review. And that'll have Pat Mullen, you know, the, uh, the, the Rattling Broadcasting Boxing Aficionado, Gavin Napier from the Casual Heroes, myself, and anyone else who wants to get in on the boxing action. And I believe that is all, folks. Uh, we'll, we'll reveal more of the calendar as time goes on. I want to, again, thank my, my uh, illustrious co-host, for all of his insights and riffing. I want to, uh, again, uh, thank Ben Cologne for his artwork and participation. Uh, for everyone, this has been The Long Road to Ruin. Be well, be safe, and behave. There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy, there'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see. Let's